0: The Stoa is a place that allows you to dialogue with different worldviews without shaming them and without Mm -hmm. being shamed in return.
1: Getting Discomfortable with Peter Limburg our guest today is Peter Lindbergh, who among many other things is most recently known as being the steward of the Stoa, which is a, a statement that I really want to unpack. But first, I just want to say thanks for coming on the show, Peter.
0: Thanks for having me, AJ. I'm excited to be here.
1: So what for the, for the listeners who don't know, what, what is the Stoa and what does it mean to be the steward of the Stoa? Let's take it way back.
0: all right let's see if i can um every time i try to explain this it comes out differently (laughs) Uh, that's that's
1: like me defining shame (laughs) it's always different
0: right right so i think most simply the stoa in its current manifestation is uh an online event space if you Mm. will Mm -hmm. Uh, uh and all the events happen uh via zoom on zoom calls and uh There's various different events that happen. There's um, what I like to call like a communal podcast. And I'll unpack what that means. It's uh, a guest comes on and uh, they either present a a lecture or they get interviewed. And then there's people listening uh, in the Zoom room, sometimes like uh, over 100. And and then uh, when it pivots to the Q&A portion, then people write their questions and then they and ask your question to the person uh directly so instead Mm -hmm. of like a a one-on-one interview podcast it's a like the group the stoa Mm -hmm. village so to speak interviews Mm -hmm. the person and then we have uh various reoccurring events and i i put these uh under something called the wisdom gym so we have like uh a breath work weekly breath work we have these various kind of interpersonal what they call intersubjective practices like collective presencing uh, we have your your event uh, mm-hmm. the shame breakthrough Bootcamp, every thursday um so if you just go on the website the the store.ca you can just see like a, a list of uh, all sorts of events um but the broad umbrella as of as of this moment is it is an event space online event space and mm-hmm. mm-hmm. to ask answer your other question about the steward like i'm the the steward of the stoa so i created this this place um when covid came online uh so almost a year now uh the first event was on march 21st and uh i can go a little bit about my history before that but yeah it it started uh uh, a year ago and i gave myself the name the steward because i have a proclivity for kind of jazzy titles (laughs) if you (laughs) go on the website you 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 get a sense uh yeah and it, it, I didn't know what to call myself because the organizer, you know, like, I don't know, like nothing really fit because the stoic is sort of a nebulous place. Like, no one really knows exactly what it is. And I kind of like to keep it that way. Mm-hmm. And so I just kind of like went to the dictionary and just kind of found steward. I'm like, I like that. And then I, I threw that on. Uh, but something feels right about it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
1: I had assumed it was like a stoicism word steward.
0: yeah that's probably a good assumption but but it's not (laughs) at least at least i don't know if it is so yeah i'd love to hear more about
1: you know your a bit of your history that led up to this kind of inspired moment to start the stoa
0: yeah so it's uh i would say it's the intersection of a few things uh one is my interest in philosophy uh and at their kind of eclectic intellectual pursuits because if you look at my like bookshelf there's like everything from philosophy political science spirituality uh, I'm very uh, intellectually curious and there's like a novelty bias there mm. um, which you can definitely see if you just scroll through the the guest list of the the past guest list of the the Stoa YouTube channel um, and I took philosophy when I was at the University of Toronto I, like what fifteen years ago now um, And when I got out of the university, I went into, uh, um, you know, the work world. Uh, I was in kind of like the educational industry and I was separate from kind of that, that just that deliciousness of putting one, uh, putting myself at the edge of my thinking Mm. Uh, and I missed it. And so I ended up creating a, a stoicism group, which is sort of, I can unpack what stoicism is as well, but that's sort of my philosophical foundation uh and then i created another group in toronto uh, and you, you came to a few of those when they were in person yeah yeah so i had two of these philosophical based intellectual discussion groups and they became quite large like the Stoicism one became like the largest stoic group in the world and so there was some buzz around them um so that was one thing that was happening before the online stoic came the other thing that was happening is i had a podcast where it was associated with the in-person groups and i was um injuring a lot of people related to this, the similar kind of interests. And then I would say the third bucket is I was a trainer, uh, at Dale Carnegie training. Uh, so that's sort of my, it was supporting my livelihood. That was sort of where my kind of expertise is, is designing training workshop things. Mm. Um, and then when COVID came online, uh, you know, there was no work anymore at Dale Carnegie because there's like that was uh, um, they had no online presence. Uh, I couldn't meet the groups in person anymore mm-hmm. uh, because of uh, COVID. And the podcast, what I got uh, somewhat uninspired by it because it was, it was named a different thing at the time. Uh, but then when co- uh, COVID came online, all these ideas sort of like mixed together and became the stoa. Uh, and just to set this up a little bit more, one of my um, dreams, I think I told you before, is to open up a philosophical coffee shop right. um, in Toronto. Uh, so like Daylights as a coffee shop, one of these kind of like, you know, indie coffee shops and it Moonlights as an event space. Because one of the challenges was finding a common event space to host all these in-person events. Mm-hmm. And something about the name Stowe held a particular importance to me because that's how the Stoics originally got their name, uh, the Stoa. The Stoa Poccheli meant painted porch. And back in ancient Greece, uh, uh, Zeno was just hanging around the porch, just philosophizing with a bunch of people. And they got the name of the Stoics because of it. Uh, so Stoa hmm. is like the foundation of uh, Stoicism. Mm-hmm. But I don't, I don't view a, the Stoa as a place to talk about Stoicism. It's just a place to talk about what's most important. So I was going to open up this philosophical coffee shop called the Stoa, couldn't do that because of COVID. And so I said, hey, you know what, let's just create an online space, mix all these interests together, and uh, uh, call it the STOA. And then it just took off. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm.
1: I have a sense of even before the STOA, you were someone who, as you said, you have this novelty bias, but you seem to be someone with a bird's eye view on culture or cultural groups, and you were kind of looking at these different memes and comparing and contrasting. Is that right?
0: Yeah, that is right. Um, uh, One of the things that, um, in addition to those things I mentioned, uh, I was sort of analyzing culture from, you know, I would say a metaspace, and I wrote this white paper that uh, went somewhat viral amongst certain scenes uh, called Memetic Tribes of Culture War 2.0. Um and uh it sort of yeah, did an uh analysis on a lot of these sort of online subcultures groups mm-hmm. that uh don't necessarily talk to each other and uh uncharitably mm-hmm. interpret each other in such a mm-hmm. way that might not feel accurate to the person being you know analyzed by them um and so I wrote that paper in such a way that you know regardless of what quote unquote memetic tribe or scene or subculture you fall into you you felt kind of seen or heard by it. And then it also had sort of a psychoactive component because, like, oh wow, there's all these other people out there that I even heard of before. Um, so that um, I think was thanks to my novelty bias, uh, and that did inform how I hold and "quote unquote" steward the space.
1: Hmm. Hmm. It seems like you are really trying to bring together all these different tribes, as you might call them, and see what kind of synthesis or connection could be created? That was the impression I got. is, is that feel accurate to you?
0: Yes. Um, and, and it's more like not trying to engineer it. It's just sort of having a space where narrative complexity can exist. And, and what I mean by that is like having a space where people can come and dialogue that hold radically different views of what reality is and what you know, we should do in it, uh, without trying to, uh, impose it on others, just trying to hold like, wow, Mm -hmm. you know, like people view things differently than I do and not collapse into any one narrative or impose it, uh, on people. Um, and, and then the cross pollination that affords, and like, we don't know, I don't know what that's going to emerge into, but, uh, it does have this sense of excitement,
1: Mm -hmm. um,
0: to it. And I do think a lot of current philosophies in the wild or uh, political stances, there's kind of a sense of like hopelessness and despair and Mm -hmm. a lot of negativity associated Mm -hmm. with it. And when you kind of sit in this space where you know the 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 philosophers uh, call it aporia, like not really knowing what's up, Uh, and when you can kind of like rest in aporia without anxiety, it opens up the possibility space of what could be. Uh, Mm -hmm. And I think the stoa has that sense of excitement to it, like, oh, things could be different here. And we don't really know what it could be, but we're okay with that.
1: Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I love that as someone who spent years sort of longing for objective truths, specifically about like right and wrong and morality and just wanting there to be one clear system and feeling uncomfortable with the fact that there wasn't it does seem to be so liberating once you cross this threshold that says it's okay to not know it's it's okay to be uncertain to just sort of be open and accepting to a bunch of different possibilities that that's sort of been my experience do you feel that way as well
0: yes yes totally and um to bring some of the 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 shame stuff into this as well uh in your work um it's like this is happening in uh you know, the culture war with politics, with different philosophical viewpoints interview um, one that might be less heated. It's like, you know, the, the quote unquote new atheists. Uh, and when they're criticizing kind of people who have a uh, hold religious uh, mm-hmm. viewpoints, there's a sense of, it's like a, a shame spiral. It's like shame is being passed around between the two of them. And yeah. it just, and it's just, st- you know, like, like uh, I've said before in a journal, like what you shame stays the same. Um And I see a lot of these sort of mimetic tribes or different groupings, um, shaming, uh, each other, uh, and they're not really talking to each other. And so the, the Stoa is a place, and I think other places are are emerging similar to it, um, that allows you to dialogue with different worldviews without shaming them and without Mm -hmm. being shamed in return.
1: Mm -hmm, Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, I there's so much juicy richness in what you just said. I want to I want to dig in a little bit because, to me, you know, shame is all about belonging, the safety as a social animal of having a group. So it makes sense, of course, that shame is pressuring us to kind of like create a group identity and stick with that. And when something doesn't fit, we we want to shame that. We want to be like, no, be like us. This is what is safe. However, in the modern world, we don't really need these tribes as such. In fact, as I think is clear to everyone, they are causing more um, conflict than is really necessary. And, And when you bring up the new atheists, that's like exactly what I went through and am going through with religion. I was I was sort of implicitly conditioned into a pseudo-Christian upbringing. And then as my sexuality started to become apparent, I rejected that whole religious thing. And that was powerful at the time. There was real utility to that rejection energy. But then, more recently, I have realized that I don't need to be rejecting religion anymore. And in fact, I'm missing out on the upside of religion. Even if I don't like believe in God, I'm starting to see like, there's a reason that, you know, six billion people are religious. There's obviously an upside there. And I don't want to miss out on it. And that's very much a perspective that comes from this more uncertainty space, this more open accepting space where it's like, okay, I can both honor that it was useful to reject religion when I did, but also kind of reintegrate religion now that I'm more open-minded and get the best of both worlds. So like that's so alive for me and I I love that the stoa is sort of engendering that exact kind of reintegration. Does that fit with you? Like what what does that bring up for you?
0: Yeah, it brings up um another example uh that's alive in, uh, with me right now and that's um kind of like monogamy versus uh the poly community mm-hmm. um and so i'm a monogamous uh, i've been so uh all my life really um all my kind of adult life uh and i'm you, you know my wife camille i've, I've mm-hmm. been with her for i don't know, like like i don't know, 13 14 years and we've been married for over 10 years um and you know initially it's like there was a when i when i heard about poly community and then i read like ethical slot there was like an almost an unconscious like judgment judgment judgmental vibe emerging from me like "Ah, what is this it doesn't work whatever um but there was like you know i was was intrigued by it and it was only till i started engaging uh with the literature and the community and people who are in it in a good faith way uh and i had to do so with an openness it's like oh yeah I, i might convert, (laughs) you know, like I might become poly. I might uh, have an open relationship. I might realize uh, like, wow, two things can coexist at the same time. Like maybe there's a a monogamous lifestyles and poly lifestyles that could coexist. Mm -hmm. So that that had to be like a a world of possibilities for me to do this in the right way. But when I started engaging in it in a good faith way, without any judgmental energy and just kind of like accepting it on his own terms, I gained like uh, so much wealth from the terminologies just like things like a uh, uh, new relationship energy. Yeah. I was just uh, thinking that. Yeah. Like I, like the, the monogamous community, is so blind to things like that. They yeah. have no kind of like words to put on it. And when you kind of stumble on that, it could just really capture you. And then obviously the poly community has to deal with these things on a regular basis. So they, ha- it makes sense for them to have these finely tuned concepts. Mm-hmm. And, and I feel kind of uh, right now, like after engagement uh, with the community, I still feel kind of, uh, that monogamy is my path in the relational sense. Um, but knowing all these terms and the poly community and stuff, it's like, wow, I feel like I'm a better monogamous now. Mm. Um mm-hmm. And, and I'm, I'm friends with people who are, are poly. And I noticed there's like the shame spiral there. Like they feel shamed by monog- the, the, the dominant monogamous culture. So then they shame the, the monogamous people back. And there's like this weird thing there. Yeah. But if you can kind of set the conditions, set the container in such a way where you can have an honest engagement with where you earnestly want to know the other person's reality, then that, that shamey judgmental vibe just dissipates. And you can actually learn and improve uh, um, from each other's knowledge sets.
1: Yeah, and I think there is a courage involved, because as you said, there is sort of a point where you're like, "Uh oh, what if they're quote unquote, right? And what if I end up joining them? So to kind of like have this open inquiry is to potentially be proven wrong in air quotes, to potentially be converted, to potentially change. And I think that they're kind of needs to be that courage when we engage in trying to connect and openly understand others. And that's so exciting and kind of like risky. But then ultimately, there's this something comforting about knowing that you can be both. Like you don't have to be, you don't have to have been right or wrong. You can just be like, oh, well, I had an upside over here and now I see their upside over there and I can do both. I can use both upsides rather than having to keep it so binary. That seems to be really important here. Does that feel true to you?
0: Yeah. And usually I find when I am having, um, kind of that courageous engagement, I'm always surprised. It's never what you expect. Uh, cause, uh, your straw man, demonized version of uh, whatever group of people or tribe or, or philosophy you're engaging with mm-hmm. um, never turns out to be exactly what it is. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And, and it's like the, this quote by Ken Wilber I really like is like, no one is smart enough to be 100% wrong. <laughs> even if, if it's not going to be like an exact like 50 50 like oh like uh you know 50 percent of what they say is right 50 percent of what i say is right it's not, it's not gonna be like that either it could just be like one percent of what they say is right but that one yeah. percent could change your fucking life
1: yeah yeah um, i resonate with that so hard and, and the religion thing comes up again it's like if there are a bunch of people who believe something it's because it has utility don't discount that yeah yeah exactly I'm I'm reminded I'm taking a really interesting class on like equity and inclusion right now and apparently there's uh, the science of in-groups and out-groups that sounds like it's really playing into this phenomenon and what I've been learning is that interestingly when our brain is trying to make sense of the world we have this in- inherent bias of what our in-group is and then everybody else is an out-group and our brain just has a kind of handful of ideas about what that out group is and doesn't really need to know any more. So every person we engage with, our brain very quickly decides, are they in or are they out? And if they're out, we have a confirmation bias that just sort of reaffirms, looks for reaffirming facts about this small cluster of kind of ideas we have about that outgroup. So we kind of pigeonhole box in these people. Whereas our brain does a very different thing with our in-group. It looks for individuating details for our in-group. So it's sort of it's sort of surprisingly counterintuitive that when someone is our outgroup, we look for similarities in them in terms of our stereotype when someone is our in-group then we start to differentiate them we're like okay so though they're one of us what are they like what's their deal and so like we we really create a unique human out of each person that we see as our in-group and each out group person becomes just one of the same and does that feel like that kind of is playing into this issue
0: Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. And, and what comes up there for me is um it's sort of like whatever triggers that, you know, if it's an appearance or uh, like certain words that they say or how they use or define certain words, because uh, a lot of this the culture war divide is like you know certain words just trigger certain kind of uh, yeah. kind of uh, ideas of who this person is. It's like the the halo effect. Or the pitchfork effect emerges, and then the halo effect is that you kind of look for the best in the person uh, yeah. and all the positive attributes. And the the pitchfork effect is that you you demonize them and you put them in that category where uh, it almost like unpersons them in your mind.
1: Yeah, yeah, outgroup.
0: Yeah, outgroup. Um, and yeah, I, I I do think that dynamic emerges, uh, and it's it's understandable, uh, and, and and it's it's efficient in a way, mm-hmm. it's like a, a mm-hmm. compression algorithm, exactly. algorithm emerges, yeah.
1: saves our brain, a lot of energy.
0: Yeah. And the, the downside of that though, is, um, a, you're, you're not really understanding the person. So that's, that's, the obvious downside, but you're also not understanding yourself. Uh, it's like, you're denying yourself an opportunity for insight, uh, by engaging in an idea or a person that holds that idea that might, uh, threaten you in some way. Um, mm-hmm. And then there's like, I find like engaging in with all these like wild different ideas and uh, ideologies and philosophies is therapeutic in a way because uh, certain emotional realities get engendered in me and I've got to like, okay, stop, hold on, what's going on here? And why is these ideas triggering something in me so hard? And so I'm not by and having the opportunity and the space to process it. I have a chance to sort of individuate in a way. Um, and then get like surprising lessons that I wouldn't get otherwise, just how I kind of express with the monogamous poly uh, um, example.
1: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It seems like, like openness and acceptance are really key here. It's like you and the stoa are able to accept a wider amplitude of ideas and feelings and just be like, this is okay. I don't agree. And this is okay. And I'm uncomfortable and this is okay. Does that feel true?
0: Yes. Yes. Uh, And there's this term uh, I quite like, uh, Nora Bateson uh, introduced it uh, to the Stoa when she came to do her series. It's called uh, Trans Contextual. Um, And it's like all of us are an intersection at all times of various contexts. Yeah, Uh, like uh, context
1: being like cultures, essentially, is that right?
0: Or it could be just like, you know, I'm a husband, uh, I'm a steward, Mm, you know, mm. I'm I'm this, like all the different things that uh, uh, you identify with or people could identify with you. Um, And it's like, we're an intersection of all that. And that intersection is never the same thing. It's like a snowflake. Uh, And so if you look at someone as an uh, inter trans contextual being a trans contextual person, then you get to see them as the mystery that they are.
1: I love that because i I love to think of myself as like a journey and it seems fitting with that it's like oh look at this is this i'm seeing a glimpse of this person's journey a slice of it right here but who knows where that journey is leading it seems like a beautiful way to look and think of people right right
0: (laughs) and and, and like the whole in-group out-group thing like like first of all i think it's good to have close people that you can deeply trust and you know Feel like you can share things with and you know like a sense of tribalism will engender from that obviously Mm -hmm. but then when it comes to that categorization schema like these are my in-group out-group and then kind of like uh how that sort of bastardizes reality in a certain way um it denies that kind of trans contextual reality because if they're your in-group or out-group they're kind of known there's no mystery there yeah yeah and and i think when when we feel fully alive in relationship with another uh, you see the other person as a mystery and you see, and you see yourself as a mystery and you feel the mystery together. And that's fucking delicious because we're, we're at the edge of something right there, the edge of knowing this together and, and certain conditions like certain sense of safety needs to uh, exist, but also a certain sense of danger needs to exist there too.
1: Mm -hmm. I mean, it really does seem like that, possibility is most alive within the umbrella of whatever our brain calls its in-group, which is like, for some reason, we're like, okay, this person is okay, or one of us. But then, who are they? That's where it opens up all these questions about like, what unique snowflake are they within this safe realm of us-ness? And and I have a longing to just expand my in-group capacity like obviously there's only so many humans I can actually like deeply connect with. Like I think I've heard it's like 150, but I'd love to just, I don't know, um, hack my in group, out group bias, which I think shame is a part of in order to try to let as many people through that filter as I can so that I'm always just curious about like, okay, so you're okay, but who are you?
0: Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I like that. And I referred to it before, uh, as a protein tribalism um, and maybe we can call it like protean in group and protean here means like kind of like shape-shifting. Mm, um, mm, like I love that. And, and uh, yeah, like that container of the in group when someone's in that in group uh, there's a sense of, you know, psychological safety and, you know, all those good, good kind of energies invoke. Um, but if that container is rigid, only certain people can uh, like be filtered through it, then you're still not seeing the person as the mystery that they are. Uh, but if you have sort of a container that can shapeshift and then encompass many different people at many different times, and I think uh, it's very artful, it's like, it's like an art in yeah. order to do that. Um, it affords that, that sense of mystery. Um, at least that is uh, the theory that I'm operating on.
1: I, I mean, as we've been talking, I've been like I just keep reflecting back on the Keegan stages. I don't know if this is something that you've dug into very much, but it feels like this this open, playful space that you're talking about is is very much in line with what would be called Keegan Five. And I, it's sort of maybe you've maybe people have already called the, I think I've heard someone say the Stoa as a space is very Keegan Five. Does this resonate with you at all?
0: Yeah, yeah i i don't like all these developmental uh frameworks like the keegan stages or spiral dynamics i um i vibe with them and resonate with them and then you know and i playfully uh kind of gesture towards them often too uh, in my journals and whatnot um but i don't hold onto them too strongly mm-hmm. uh and i really like that colin morrison you know from um Zion 2.0 he says what's the Keegan stage where you stop giving a shit about Keegan stages <laughs> <laughs> and, and I, I love that and that, that, that feels like the stage I'm in and then perhaps that is stage five yeah uh, I
1: think it is because like stage three and four you really give a shit about Keegan stages
0: <laughs> yeah it's, it's that that tweet you did recently too where you're like you know it's stage three and maybe this will have to be unpacked for people listening to this but it's stage three to actually care about wanting to get uh to stage five yeah. or the higher yeah. stages
1: Yeah, it's very true. I guess why it came to mind was, you know, I'll do a whole episode about Keegan stages for those who are like, what does this mean? But like Keegan stage three for me was, I was so identified with my shame and my emotions that I was a kind of like chameleon socially and trying to fit in desperately with every group. And then I had my shame breakthrough. I went into Keegan four to some degree, which was like, you know, very individuated. And then I'm starting to see with what you're saying, the similarity between Keegan 3 and Keegan 5 in that you are a a chameleon in the sense that you can move around playfully from different tribes and try on their upsides. And, And it's not like you're desperately trying to be one of them. You are just kind of like roving around slightly bird's eye saying like, what's the what's what's the deal here that makes this so appealing to some humans? But then what's the deal over here that makes this appealing to some humans? I want to try it all on. I want to audition it. I want to wear it, but I'm not hmm. like desperately trying to be it. Does that make sense?
0: Yeah, I think that's well put. Um, I like the, the trying on metaphor it's like yeah a different philosophy a different worldview is like an outfit you try on uh you might not like that outfit or you might not want to wear it all the time at least you have the capacity to put it on um and then and then um kind of appreciate the the perks of it you might actually like an aspect of it like oh you know i like these socks or something like that (laughs) (laughs) you might want (laughs) you might want to keep those uh but yeah that's 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 right and that's um i think what i do uh with people i encounter um in the the social wild and that's that's the space that i'd like the stoa to be to have this kind of like uh, wardrobe of various different philosophies available for people to try on.
1: Hmm. Hmm. I love that. So, so you've just spent a year raiding the closets, the philosophical closets of <laughs> all of these different <laughs> tribes. And I'm, I'm curious, like, what are some of the gems that you've found? Like, what are there some theories and and philosophies or aspects of that are really standing out for you? Because, like, you know, you had. This cultural bird's eye view before and now, like I can only imagine the many different insights you've tried on. It's like uh, it's fascinating, and I'm curious to know, like what's mm. bubbling up? Is it changing? Are there certain things? What's what's the most alive for you?
0: Mm. Yeah, that's a good question, um, and I can't even pinpoint it to one sort of philosophy or person because it's like the uh there probably is almost a thousand events that we did i would say i think that's almost fair to say at this point Mm. um the recorded ones uh probably around 400 recorded events and those are the the communal podcast interview styles where someone comes in shares their ideas and that's all on the youtube channel And if you just browse through it it's like you can't really pattern match what the stoa is um philosophically or ideologically or whatever and i like that mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. It, and like we've had people we had noam chomsky we had contra points we had uh we had just like so much people and they're all interesting and just the intersection the cross-pollination of them it, it's it's not about the content it's it's about like how one engages in the content right, that is right. what like kind of uh, feels like i'm getting more skillful at
1: so it is this meta level, this openness, this acceptance, like the, it, the, the rating, the way to raid the closet or interact with the closet is the real insight. That's what I'm hearing.
0: Yeah, yeah. And um, it's like what's coming to mind is uh, our friend John Verveke. Um, he's a professor at the University of Toronto, and he does something about the meaning crisis. He has a series on it. Uh, and he has these uh, four Ps of knowing. And the first two uh, or two of them, I should say, is uh, propositional knowing and then participatory knowing and propositional knowing is sort of like, what is the truth uh, of a situation? So these are like the content of someone's ideas and participatory knowing is this like the, the knowledge that it takes to actually do something. So an example that I like to use is like Michael Jordan he's like has a lot of participatory knowing on how to play basketball well mm-hmm. but he doesn't necessarily have the skill set to write a PhD level textbook on basketball it's different things
1: mm-hmm. um mm-hmm.
0: And uh, so when referring to kind of engaging with these things, it's like, yeah, they all have their propositional knowing in each one of them, uh, but it's the participatory knowing how to engage with them. And that's the Keegan five level. It's just kind of like engaging with them in such a way without collapsing to their worldview and without shaming it at the same time. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm,
1: mm-hmm. I mean, uh, to me, it almost sounds like cognitive versus embodied knowing. You know, there's so many, so many ideas about shame that I understood cognitively for a long time. But it wasn't until they got into, like, my limbic system or my body somehow, I don't exactly know what the science is, that I really got it. I was like, oh, now I get it and I can, like, see it and live it rather than just explain the theory of it. And so, like, I'm curious to what degree. I'm imagining some people come and you, like, you understand them on this cognitive level and then other people come with ideas and you really kind of, like, get it on a physical level? Or are you doing both? Like so what you, how do you relate to those two ways of knowing when it comes to the the different ideas of the Stoa?
0: Yeah, it's like uh that's that's a good distinction and it maps over to what the uh, what I just said, uh, cognitive embodied uh and then propositional participatory. Mm-hmm. And uh you know like some people are very kind of clear and um precise with the words that they use and the way that they define them. And you know you can engage in that realm, like, okay, they're using this word like this and this is what they mean by it. So you can come to terms. And, and some people are more fast and loose with the words that they use and maybe they use broad terms that feel kind of nebulous. And a lot of people in the quote unquote hippie kind of spiritual type communities um, have, that, have that way of speaking about things, but they speak about it in such a way Uh, that you feel it's like an embodied, like, I get what they're saying right now. I get what they're gesturing towards. Um, and so I find, depending on who shows up and sort of where they have more proficiency in, a uh, certain part of my knowing gets activated. Mm-hmm. Am, I, am I trying to understand them more from an embodied realm and then kind of like charitably interpreting it in the, prop, in, in the cognitive propositional? Or am I first understanding them from the propositional cognitive realm and then trying to sink into my uh, participatory embodied uh, knowing in order to kind of like uh, ground those truths?
1: Mm-hmm, hmm Yeah, we talked about, you know, I I sense that the stoa does have these two sides. There's there's certain um, offerings that are more on the like feelings embodied side. And then there's like maybe even more offerings on the intellectual cognitive propositional side. And we talked about like the almost like uh, bridging the gap where, okay, here, this is the learn the idea. And then like, how can we get it into our bodies as being kind of like, making sure we do both sides for our due diligence. Does that seem like a a, a wise move?
0: Yeah. Yeah. And you know, that split I talked about like the stores and event space, and then we have this communal podcast thing, which is more, it um, has, has a bias towards, uh, you know, propositional cognitive knowing. And the most of the videos on the YouTube channel are that because most of them more, embodied sessions uh, like your yours is uh, they're not recorded mm-hmm. um but there is currently uh, i would say an imbalance um towards more uh, cognitive uh propositional and, and perhaps it's just the frame of the stoa you know and it's like kind of like all the intellectual jazzy names that i use it could attract more people who have that bias mm-hmm. um mm-hmm. but i find like i'm like a lot of sessions i'm zoning out when it's like too heady or intellectual or disembodied um and uh I'm slowly feeling the call to have a more like have a healthier balance. Uh and I don't know exactly what it is. Is it 50-50 split? Is it like it could be a different kind of like um ratio, but I feel called to make things more embodied. And I get really excited uh and I feel alive when a guest comes in um that shares information that can be acted upon. Uh and like the basis, like, I know we didn't talk much about stoicism. I'm not really called to talk about stoicism because of this, like one of the main axioms of stoicism, and this is a Epictetus, don't talk about your philosophy, embody it. Mm, um, wow. and, and yeah, I want the stoic to be a place where if we're going to be talking about something from an abstract lens, we can quickly embody it or have some practices uh, or an ecology of practices that allow it to be embodied. Hmm. Hmm. I love that.
1: I'm curious I want to pivot a little bit into you know I I've, I've got a sense now of what the that you learned from the guests in this meta level but I'm wondering like what have you learned on a more practical level from stewarding the stoa about 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 humans about putting on events about like is there some juicy learnings in there as well like more the technical steward side as opposed to the philosophical steward side
0: Yeah um so it's essentially like a one-man operation. Um, we're like probably averaging 20 events a week. And uh, and actually there's a lot of, lot of a min work going on with this. And we haven't talked about this as well, but since COVID, uh, I've been writing to myself every day as well, um, which is like an extra uh, thing that I do. So there's, there's a lot of work mm-hmm. uh, being put into this space. And yeah, so it's, organization is huge, like just being a good, uh, min administrator in that sense. Um, but, the, the more, I think, interesting one is, uh, I felt like I got interpersonally and intrapersonally upgraded, uh, through this place, um, since mm. it started, uh, and, Nothing clearly is coming to mind there, but I imagine it could be teased out, but definitely because I've been interacting with so much people, so much people have been coming in my life. It's just amazing. Um, and yeah, here's one thing that's a little bit on the the spiritual woo side and might be a pivot, but I'll mention it because it just came alive is, um, a beacon, you know, like the store, um, essentially a passion project, um, and I'm not using it to instrumentalize. I'm not instrumentalizing it to make money or do this or whatever. It's like uh, I was called to create it. And there's like the, the word I frequently use is the daemon or some people call it the daimon. And to kind of explain that in like a secular lens, it's like that kind of creative intuition that says go here without explaining that going there will be uh, good for you. Uh, <laughs> but you're like you're you're called to go there you know, something is summoning you to go there. And if you listen to that, that, that voice, that, that kind of like demonic nudge, and you go there, usually an adventure emerges, and something good comes from it. And all my creative projects in my life, uh, including the Stoa, the Stoa, um, have been me listening to this creative intuition and going there. Um, so that is sort of uh, the spiritual uh, uh, mo of how I operate with this project. And what I'm finding when I when I, Create things in the spirit. It's like putting a beacon out there, uh, and to find the others, and then super awesome people are coming into my life, and they're coming like the stove is a, it's like kind of like a, a nexus point, really, for all these people to meet and inter- interact mm-hmm. with each other. And it's like a beacon, um, and I find that like uh, I, I like to call it like you know it's networking, which is like that dirty word in business world, but I like I like this term called net playing. It's like my network has increased tenfold by me just net playing, by following this demonic essence, creating this beacon that attracts the others. Um, and that is sort of like one of many of the kind of the insights like, wow, that that, that like, theoretically, I got a sense of that before. But, you know, this shit actually works <laughs> like doing it. Um Yeah.
1: Wow, I love this term net playing. I hadn't heard that. I love that so much. That's so inspiring. And I'm, I guess I'm kind of curious to like take your temperature. How do you feel about people right now? Like you've interacted with so many people, some, some great, some difficult, I'm imagining. Like where are you at on people in general? Is it optimistic?
0: yeah like i love people in, in that uh that abstract way i guess um you know like the, the sartre said like uh other people's hell i think that's his quote yeah yeah uh and when i was younger at least on an embodied level maybe not on a cognitive level i felt that you know i had a co- kind of like a a negative sense towards this abstract categorization of people even though i had really close friends that i adored um but yeah that's dissipated that that kind of um that essence uh when i think of people and that abstract term people or humanity or whatever i just feel warmth um kind of a loving energy um and mm. uh and just sort of like i don't really have that kind of in group out group strict categorization anymore uh it's a lot more nuance for me uh how i view people and i do view people when i come across someone as a transcontextual contextual being in a way. Um, and this is not to say I, I have like a, a slew of social uh, taxonomies and, and ways to categorize people. And I do think those could be helpful um, to help kind of like um, navigate the social realm, but I hold onto them very, very lightly uh, and not in a way that sort of like creates this other fulfilling prophecy. It's like, you know, you uh, view someone a certain way, then you treat them that certain way. Then they start acting that way. Uh, Pygmalion effect. I think that's what they call it. Mm. Um, So I I do have a lot of ways that I kind of like filter through people. And and I think you need that to an, uh, to a degree, but for the most part when I'm on a one-on-one setting and then the container is designed in such a way that a connection can be afforded. uh, I just try to see the mystery in the other person and it's quite beautiful.
1: Yeah. I, I notice that I still have a kind of default fear of other people. Like when I'm walking in the forest by myself, I'm like ah, feeling a lot of joy. And then I see another person on the trail and I notice like a little bit of shame and fear come up just like naturally. Like a, so I have like an embodied sort of sense that other people might hurt me somehow. That's, that's something that I'm working on. And so it's, it sounds to me like when you walk, metaphorically or literally by yourself through a forest and you see another person up ahead your body is starting to react in a much more like open curious way does that feel true to you
0: um I would say context is important here because uh I have something similar um to what you just experienced if I'm in kind of like the physical and I'm just walking around um I don't think it's good to be naive uh and just kind of like have this like trustful energy with everyone because there's people out there that will hurt you, will harm you. Uh, and that's just a reality, uh, of life right now. Mm-hmm. Um, and then some people have the proclivity to do that more than others, uh, and in, in with either direct physical harm or psychological harm. Uh, so I, I don't recommend others and I don't hold out myself to be naive with it. I, I think becoming more sophisticated with a certain power, Literacy really helps with that sophistication. Um, that being said, I think container is uh, king or queen here, and this is going back to that container with the in-group, and this is basically the stoa or any kind of workshop setting. Uh, is the person who's responsible for the container or the agenda uh, designing in such a way that affords these connections to emerge? Uh, mm-hmm. and, and when you're in the, the wild, these containers don't exist, right? They just like form uh, when two people or two or more people interact with each other. So I think it's good to have protective layers um, in an examined way and with the adjacent skill set of being sensitive to the container's agendas and designing them in such a way that affords true connection.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm thinking of Brene Brown talks about how with the right boundaries, you can be empathetic, you know, for to a much greater degree and boundaries, empathy without boundaries is like not safe. And it sounds to me like this container, the right boundaries is, is, is what creates the safety for you to be able to then really connect with people. Is
0: that right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I actually think boundaries uh, is a good way to look at it. It's like um, not being rigid in one's boundaries and not having um, sort of um, one model that just you imply, it's like, you know, kind of like Maslow's hammer. Like once you have a hammer, everything becomes a nail. Mm -hmm. It's like once you have one boundary (laughs) structure, like everything falls under that boundary structure. But it's like each kind of context, each situation sort of uh, requires uh, a different boundary. uh, And maybe it's just small little tweaks uh, to accommodate whatever the context is. Mm -hmm, But mm -hmm. yeah, having, it's like boundary work is like an art form. And, and mm-hmm. that's something I'm, I'm very kind of sensitive to, not just as an individual, uh, but also when I am responsible for hosting uh, an event or a space or something like that.
1: Mm-hmm. And I imagine that transparency thus is key. It's, it's not about maybe you having the exact same boundary every time, but it's about being clear, okay, in this moment, this is what I think is the right boundary. Is everyone willing to um, kind of go with that? Does that seem right?
0: Yeah, yeah, and, and I think sometimes it's it's important to have them explicitly stated like uh and you know these kind of like circling communities, uh, I yeah. don't know if your listeners are familiar with that. I know you're actively in it. Like they're very explicit with uh the guidelines, the container, the boundaries that people are walking into. Uh and sometimes, you know, these can be um stated in um indirectly uh, like when you come across someone, you can't just say, Hey, uh, this is my boundaries and I want you to follow these guidelines. <laughs> like it doesn't work like that in the majority yeah. of the cases, yeah. but you can kind of express your boundaries in such a way that is quite clear. And if someone transgresses that, then it's like, you know, they, they know what the options are. And that's kind of like, you know, certainness training and, and it takes, it's an art form in itself, but uh, it's, 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 it's a distinct skill set doing it in the wild, then doing it, uh, designing a container that, that, that affords it.
1: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. When people come to the STOA, they are obviously kind of primed to be within a certain uh loose container to some degree, whereas in the forest, <laughs> who knows what's going to happen.
0: Yeah, yeah, exactly.
1: So this is kind of making me think about the new coaching thing that we're doing at the STOA. For those who don't know, I'm doing coaching and Peter's doing coaching. And, it, it you know, hearing you talk about this sort of like the The way that you play with all these different theories and ideas and philosophies. It's like, how do you then teach? Like, you know, it, it seems like you need something concrete to teach, perhaps. Or maybe not. Maybe I'm being naive. Maybe you can teach this sort of meta perspective. Like, when, what, what you know, when I think about this whole Keegan level five thing, I I start to become so open and accepting that I almost lose the will to really be like, this is what I think, here's the upsides. I'm kind of like, hey, I don't know, you go off and figure it out for yourself. So I wonder where you land in that nebulosity.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a good question. Um, and this is something that I'm actively working out and I imagine you are as well in this yeah. coaching practice. So just to set a, a kind of... Um, the preface it uh what i'm going to say is that so we have this coaching and resonance series uh at the stoa uh it's uh, uh tyson wagner um yourself and me uh tyson is the flow guide so he's, he's like a freestyle kind of rapper and he repurposed freestyle rap in order to make people more comfortable with flowing with their language um aj is the the uh, shame educator uh and i'm <laughs> the daemon whisperer mm-hmm. um which is probably the most nebulous uh one of the three um and i think with with you in tyson uh it's your your practice is bounded by something like yeah. flow, like you know flowing with one's words and then kind of having a sophisticated being in right relationship with shame um so i think and i could be mistaken here um uh, but i think having a bounded thing helps inform one with um the methodology that emerges that becomes most efficient, so to speak with, yeah. with a wide variety of people. And you, I, I know you already have, uh, one, and then you're experimenting with it in, the, in this coaching practice as well. And what also makes this coaching practice great that we're in is it's situated in the gift economy. So we don't, it's not the market economy where it's like, okay, you got to charge us $200 and we give you an hour of our time. Um, it's a little looser, uh, it's little more loose than that, um, where we come in certain time and then, person uh, as a gift we give our coaching offering as a gift and someone uh gives us a gift in return a monetary gift in return and sometimes you know some people didn't give it uh, very few though but and then sometimes people give really tremendous gifts mm-hmm. uh, um so that's sort of the 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 preface the the practice and for mine the daemon whisperer it's it's you know i'm discovering what it is and um the default that I use sort of the method, if you will, is uh, philosophical counseling, um, which I got from Andrew Taggart. And how I would describe that is usually someone's coming in for a reason. They don't just like come in for no reason. And then that reason usually has to use like marketing lingo as like a pain point. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's where the opening is like uh, the existential opening, if you will, what is most salient. And then that's a starting point. And then just asking the right question that allows that exploration to begin Uh, because it's really hard to do that on your own unless you have a really diligent journaling practice or something like that because monkey mind takes over and then you go through all these different directions Mm -hmm. and um yeah so that's sort of the the basis and i have all these coaching other uh, techniques as well and uh what's also interesting about this this is that the stoa uh is so um has such uh Diversity of thought has such like uh, epistemic diversity is that everyone's coming in with a different worldview. Mm -hmm. And so what I find is that I have to get a sensitivity of what their worldview is and then work within it and then engage in that something akin to that methodology I just described. So there's like an extra layer that I have to engage with. And this is, uh, I guess this is the Keegan five stuff. And this is making me really sophisticated in sort of code switching authentically with Mm -hmm. the person's perspectival language in order to be of uh, service to them.
1: Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I love that. Yeah. Like my, my coaching practice is definitely a little bit more keegan for. It's like, I have a system and I, I'm going to bend you to my system, which is perhaps why it doesn't... It's like a, every now and then there's a client where it's like, wow, we just like, it just really didn't connect there. And so I appreciate your ability to kind of like assess the scene and be like, okay, like this is what's going to speak to them. And also like, this is what might you know, scaffold around their view already to expand it in a useful way that I guess ultimately relieves this pain point. Does that seem accurate?
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and I I also add there is um, it's like, you know, I've got a few people where it's like, ah, didn't didn't feel like that. Like I I was the person to be of service to them. Uh like mm-hmm. and I think this is this is like this is an experiment for us in marketing. Uh, cause you know, there, there's a, a way to sophisticated, uh, like authentically and sophisticatedly market in such a way that f- finds the others that you filter out people. But the way we have it right now, we just throw on the website and it's like anyone like, Oh, this looks cool. And then they jump in and they might not be, you know, they might not know what they're going into exactly. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. and so th- we're just a month into this. And I think the more we do it, uh, either, in the in the stoa or as individuals in our own thing uh will become more um fine-tuned in really describing and advertising it so people go in knowing exactly what it's about
1: mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and and i will say you know and this is like a compliment to the stoa the people who come though like there are a lot of different points of view are all really smart yeah. like really you know um, it's often kind of like a intimidating even or a challenge to be like, oh, wow, okay, this, this person's got a lot of uh, – either they've got a lot of really strong ideas of their own or they kind of already understand what I'm telling them to such a degree that anyway that it's like, uh, do they even need me? So I, I'm like really – I'm really enjoying interfacing with the kind of people that the stoa draws together and i feel like that's what draws people to the stoa it's this beacon that brings together just a, a, a really intriguing kind of person and i think that that yeah. is like a real achievement of
0: yours yeah it's well thank you uh and, and and it's like it's like it is intimidating for me as well it's like this is just, yeah not only freakishly smart people, but they're freakishly smart people who tend to be more on the embodied side too. Uh, like they're, they, they're interested in both the, what you, what you call the cognitive and embodied realm. Uh, and so they're like pretty, pretty, pretty sharp people. And I find, uh, uh, with my coaching sessions, I I feel a similar thing. It's that someone's coming in like, Ooh, they, 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 on, at least on a, um, a cognitive level, they got their shit handled. They, they don't need me there. Uh, you know and then it's like kind of acknowledging that like okay this that's you know respecting them that domain Mm -hmm. and then some people come in treating me as an like an authority an epistemic authority and i kind of got to like reduce that a little bit because then that's not what i'm here for either i'm not here Mm -hmm. to like just kind of like teach a methodology i'm here to kind of like uh be embodied together help us to be embodied together but yeah getting sensitivity with who i'm dealing with and how to best be of service to them is is something that's hard to describe but i'm feeling like this is a skill that is developing, uh, through this practice. Mm-hmm,
1: mm-hmm. And it's really rewarding, like getting to connect with people one-on-one and really like digging into them and to me, cause I like to bring a lot of myself to the sessions. It, it, it's so different than doing a, a group thing, you know, with like 50 people or a hundred people. It's, it's so intimate and interesting and it's just like a whole nother way of interacting and, uh, I'm, I'm really enjoying it. And I,
0: it sounds like you are as well. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm loving it. <laughs> I'm just like really, really loving it. Uh, and I'm like, I'm surprised, you know, uh, we didn't do this sooner at the stoa, but, uh, it yeah. feels like this is the, the right time, um, so, yeah, I'm, I'm very grateful for doing it. And I'm grateful for, you know, having a um, a coaching adventure buddy in uh, <laughs> with, with you and Tyson.
1: Yeah, well, I'm so grateful to just sort of have, like, somehow luckily, you know, gotten my umbrella hook on this moving train that was the STOA early on. Like, I don't, mm. I don't even know how it happened. It was a, a point in the STOA where you could just, like, really quickly go from being a participant to <laughs> leading your own group. Yeah. And... And so I, I just sort of like, I feel like I'm a, I'm along for the adventure of wherever the Stoa and you are going, and and so that's sort of just me being like, thank you for like mm-hmm. involving me in this really cool thing, mm. and then also opening it up to like, where is the? This is sort of a joke question, but it's opening up an ending. Where is the train going?
0: Hmm. Hmm. Um Well, I, I want to just say that's. Uh the gratitude is well received my friend. And, uh, I have a lot of gratitude, uh, you know, to send your way as well. You've been here since the beginning really. Um, and I was actually thinking like, how did AJ and I first kind of like connect when the stoa started? Cause I, I recall you being at a few in-person events, but we never really spoke. Yeah. Um, it's just like, you know, I heard you uh, speak in some of the group conversations, like, okay, this, this guy's sharp. Um, and then I saw you at uh, some of the um, early online sessions. Uh, and then I can't remember how we connected, but I was going through this kind of like, <laughs> if you were reading my journals back then, I was like some, having a spiritual crisis. And I just like, I felt like upgraded. And I was just reaching out to everyone. Everyone was like, oh, this love was emerging. Uh, and so I really like uh, trusted my intuition. And I, and I sensed something was there between us and, and was with you. Uh, and so, yeah, you 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 and I did some really cool, exercises like loving cringe meditation or narcissist mm-hmm. spotlight which set mm-hmm. up the uh, the shame break through boot camp and then you you've been here since the beginning really so um week after week which is quite awesome uh so yeah lots of gratitude your way for being um here and supportive of the project um and to answer your question where is the stoa um going uh so the anniversary. It started on uh, March 21st uh, of last year, uh, just right after the pandemic was announced. Uh, and there's on the anniversary of the anniversary. There's a maybe the end of the Stoa party, um, and on the Stoa might end on its one-year anniversary. And I like the idea of, you know, these things. Uh, the sand mandala. I don't know if you know that. Mm-hmm. Like, mm-hmm. like these mandalas are these like like really kind of um, integrate integrated circles and like this, you could Google it. It looks beautiful. And then uh, I think in the Tibetan Buddhistic tradition, they create a mandala out of sand. And after they create this beautiful thing, they just like brush it away. Right. And then it goes away. Mm-hmm. And, and I've used Stoa as a work of art, really. I don't, I don't view it as a business an organization, a school or anything like that. I view it as a work of art, a collective work of art really um, that is stewarded by myself. And, yeah, just the idea that it could be a sand mandala and it goes away, and then it was just um, a beautiful experience for all of us for a year. That mm-hmm. that, that to me, just the artist in me is like, yes, do it, <laughs> do it, do it, Stuart. Uh, but but that that's one option. Another option is um, it just continues, uh, and then there's a lot of other kind of interesting threads and surprises emerging in my mind. Uh, but I don't want to tell anyone, not even. Yeah my wife uh or my cat socrates i just want to keep it to my myself um so yeah uh, the mystery is going to uh exist until the the party and then on the party i'll announce what 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 happens next mhm
1: mm-hmm. so for those who are hearing this and um haven't checked out the stoa go to the stoa.ca and go to events while you can and then on March 21st, we're going to have this party and see what what is going to happen next. And and I think this podcast will come out at least a week in advance of that. So people have an opportunity to <laughs> check out this STOA and and see how it all ends. Cool.
0: And you're going to be there, AJ, at the party. Uh, yes. Yes. Yeah, so uh, yeah, if you want to see AJ, Tyson, and a bunch of other um, facilitator superstars, uh, we'll all be there and we're going to have uh, a lot of fun. <laughs>
1: hmm hmm Well, thank you so much for coming on the show, Peter. I could obviously talk to you on and on forever, but I feel like this is probably a good place to wrap it up. Are there any um, final things you want to share practically about, you know, places people can check you out, stuff like that?
0: Yeah, you can check out events at thestoa.ca. Um, and uh, my... Substack where I, I journal to myself almost on a daily basis is a stoic practice of journaling to myself or journaling to oneself. Um, beyond that, you know, uh, check out AJ's stuff. I'm a big supporter <laughs> of what you do, my friend, and very grateful to have had this conversation with you today.
1: Yeah, me too. Thanks so much, Peter. And I look forward to chatting again soon. Maybe after the stoa, we can have another interview and see what the daemon <laughs> is pointing to then.
0: Beautiful. Let's do it.